inside your bulletins, how many of you actually get a bulletin? Raise your hand if you pick up a bulletin. Some of you are analog paper people. I am. I like paper. Um, there is information in there about uh, uh, Andrew Brunson. Uh, it's been a year now that he has been in prison in Turkey. Uh, when the coup happened in Turkey, they the government used this as an opportunity to sweep up all kinds of people. He's one of the persons who has uh, gotten swept up uh, in what's going on there. Uh, he had been in Turkey for 30 years. He was a known figure. This, he was not mysterious to the government or what he was doing was not in any way uh, unknown already. Uh, the President of the United States has taken up the issue of Andrew Brunson and has raised it at the highest level. You can be shocked about that uh, if you want, but the reality is, is that Donald Trump spoke to the President of Turkey about Andrew Brunson. Thanks be to God. Now, one of the things that's happened in this is is that the president of Turkey has his eyes on a Muslim cleric who lives in upstate New York whom the president of Turkey thinks is somehow responsible for the coup that happened there. And so he wants to trade. Okay, so you have to understand how this, what this means in, in global political terms because if they trade, that man dies. Okay, so we're going to continue to pray for Andrew Brunson. We're going to continue to pray for the leaders of our country. We're going to continue to pray for the people of Turkey who suffer under a repressive regime and are in darkness. And so let us pray. Gracious Father, Lord of the nations, you are the only wise and good sovereign of our times. We praise you for your greatness and mercy. While we have not yet seen the answer to our prayers for Andrew's release, we trust you still that you are at work in ways beyond what we can see or understand. You have invited us to come boldly into your presence, and so we come before your throne of grace, asking that out of your glorious riches you would strengthen Andrew with the power of your spirit, so Christ might dwell in his heart by faith. Root and establish him in love that he may grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for him. Let your word be a spring of living hope, the presence of Jesus, an oasis of joy, and the power of the Holy Spirit, Andrew's constant source of wisdom and comfort. Strengthen Andrew in body and in spirit. Expose and confuse all the lies that stand against him. Break the power of evil and cause truth to prevail. Let accusers become advocates. Set our brother free. Cause your gospel to spread widely. Give endurance and comfort to his family. Glorify the name of Jesus Christ our Lord by whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Our New Testament this uh, reading this morning is from John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. Hear the word of God. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, amid all of the changing words and changing opinions of our times, we pray that you speak your eternal word. May we be anchored and moored in you. Add your blessing to the reading and the proclamation of your word so that it takes effect. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He was rich, rich enough to own a substantial plot of land near the city wall, a garden large enough to have its own gardener, and a tomb cut out of rock. He was well-connected and powerful, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that met in the temple and governed Jews according to the Mosaic law. But while, you can bring it right up here, but while he was rich, and influential in this world, Mark tells us that he was looking beyond this world, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, a secret disciple, closeted because he was afraid of losing his position in the Jewish community. Maybe that makes us think not too much of him. But how many of us are closeted Christians, afraid to be loud and proud for Jesus. And how much more did he have at stake than we do? His livelihood, his standing in the community, even his life were on the line. His name was Joseph of Arimathea, and it was into his tomb that Jesus was carried and laid. The charge against Jesus was sedition. Sedition is a political crime. It's the same crime that Andrew Brunson has been charged with. It is, sedition is conduct or speech designed to incite people to rebel against the government. Jesus was executed for being a traitor to the Roman Empire and traitors were treated differently from ordinary criminals. Families were permitted to collect the bodies of most criminals, but the bodies of those executed for sedition were given the further insult of being left hanging on their crosses to be plucked clean by vultures and the remains tossed into the garbage dump on the edge of town. That was the fate in store for Jesus. And no one, not even his disciples, not even his family, not even his mother, dared challenge the authority of Rome by trying to rescue the body of Jesus from this added indignity. No one. No one except Joseph of Arimathea. 
Joseph went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And he did this at the cost of being associated in Roman eyes with a traitor. And he did this at the cost of being associated in Jewish eyes with a blasphemer. Joseph must have had some pull to even get a hearing with Pilate. And to have his request granted, he must have been a man of some substance. Once he had official approval from Pilate, Joseph worked with Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, another secret disciple of Jesus, to recover the sacred body. Nicodemus, who we know well from the gospel accounts of his nighttime meeting with Jesus, brought burial cloth and 75 pounds of spices to prepare the body I wonder where he bought those things. The two men must have worked together to wash Jesus' body, to wrap it in linen with the spices surrounding the body, and then they took Jesus and laid him in the tomb that had been cut for Joseph. Heavy work, but also intimate work and tender work. Man of sorrows laid to rest. Have you given much thought to the way in which we handle or treat the bodies of dead people? The way we handle the bodies of dead people says something about how we regard human life and how we understand life after death. As our broader culture loses its Christian moorings, As the West becomes re-paganized, funeral practices are changing and not for the better. The funeral, which we Presbyterians call a service of witness to the resurrection, is turning into the life celebration ceremony. A kind of testimonial dinner, except that the honoree isn't there to eat. These de-Christianized funerals make two kinds of mistakes. On the one hand, they weirdly deny the reality of death. And on the other hand, post-Christian funeral practice fails to acknowledge the importance of the human body or look forward to the resurrection. Let me talk about these two issues separately. First, the denial of death. Funerals are orchestrated to keep people busy and moving forward. So that they don't have time to grieve. The undertaker tells you to do this and then he tells you to do that. And then he tells you to move over here and then he hustles you over there. And all the while in the funeral service someone is yammering or singing or doing some such thing. There's never a moment of peace. Never a moment to reflect on the grim fact that the loved one lies cold and dead. Never to be seen again this side of eternity. The typical funeral has papered over the grief and loss of death with all kinds of ceremony and dignity. Rather than an occasion for grieving, the funeral has become a valedictory celebration. It's as if the funeral is designed to distract us from death. And lately I've seen that funeral practice has become a plain denial of death. Let me read you a poem that a family member wanted me to read at a funeral I was asked to conduct 
not too long ago. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circle flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. A poem to be read at a funeral. Now the only problem that I see with this poem is that 11 of its 13 lines are barefaced lies. And the other two are just terrible advice. Call me hard, call me unfeeling, call me cynical, call me jaded. But there is no way you're going to convince me that the dearly departed is sunlight on ripened grain or gentle autumn rain. And the closing line, I did not die. You've got to be kidding me. Why am I standing here wearing a black suit if you didn't die? And the other two lines... Do not stand at my grave and weep. Do not stand at my grave and cry. Those lines are not lies, but they are terrible advice. Someone you love is dead. And the most natural and healthy thing in the world to do is to cry your eyes out. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, Jesus went to his tomb and he cried. If crying is good enough for Jesus, it is surely good enough for us. Now, some people will very piously say, Pastor, we don't grieve because we know that they are in a better place. Well, maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. But that's entirely beside the point, because we don't grieve for the deceased, we grieve for ourselves. I was very sad when Eric and Sharon and Jack Bowman moved to Maine, Not because I think Maine is an awful place. Not because I think the Bowmans are suffering up there in the North Country. I'm sad because I don't get to see them anymore. That's why we grieve at funerals. Because death takes from us something very precious. And saying goofy stuff like, I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. Doesn't change reality. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the motivation behind this kind of poem. It's an attempt to comfort the grieving, which is a kind-hearted thing to do. The problem is to try to comfort people by telling them lies is not a good idea. Imagine if you were to come to me upset and crying because you have lost your job. And I say to you, in an attempt to comfort you, oh, don't cry. I just got a call from Mark Zuckerberg, and he's going to make you the vice president of marketing at Facebook. And a big old smile comes up your face, even as the tears run down your cheeks, and you say, oh, pastor... That's so wonderful. I can hardly believe it's true. And I say, oh, it's not true. I just said that to cheer you up. So problem number one, 
Modern funerary practice increasingly denies the reality of death. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that it doesn't sugarcoat death. Death happens. Death is awful. And in fact, the Bible tells us that death is the enemy. And denying the reality of death like whistling in the dark when you're scared doesn't change reality. Problem number two. Post-Christian funerary practice fails to acknowledge the importance of the human body or look forward to the resurrection. Classical Greek pagan philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the whole gang, taught that the soul and the mind and the spirit are important because they are connected with, because they can know eternal realities. But the body is unimportant. Because it decays and dies. And Gnosticism, which is a spiritualized version of this philosophy and which was a major contender for the religious attention of people in the first couple of centuries of the church and which is enjoying uh, a, a revival these days, Gnosticism taught that we are spirit beings who have been captured in a body of clay by an evil God and that our spiritual goal is to escape this body and to return to the pure spirit of the good God. Quite a lot of Greek thinking has crept into Christian minds. A lot of well-meaning Christians think the soul is our true self and the body is just the shell that we drive around in like a truck. The Bible, however, teaches that the human person is a union of spirit and body. Let's be clear about this. You are spirit and body together. That means you are not you without your body. The motto of the Jesuits is a healthy mind in a healthy body. They go together. And when mind and body are divided, when soul leaves the body, we call that death. And a dead you isn't you. That's why we have the resurrection. The resurrection is the reunion of the body and the spirit. Yes, the spirit is eternal, but your spirit alone is not you, and you really shouldn't be looking forward to being a disembodied spirit. The game-changing reality of the gospel is that death has been defeated and that we look forward to the resurrection of the body. We look forward to that day when the body and the soul of those who have died are rejoined and they begin to live again as real humans in glorified bodies. That's the promise of the gospel. Our future is not eternity as disembodied souls floating in the ether. What a torment that would be. That would be like living as a brain in a jar on a shelf, something out of a horror movie, a mind disconnected from a body. God save us from that fate. No, that is not our future. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. And his body, his resurrected body, continued to bear the marks of his crucifixion. And our future is to follow Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, and to live as real human beings, not angels, in resurrected, deathless bodies in a place called New Jerusalem, where God will be present with all of the saints. The body matters. The body counts. It was made by God. 
And when God decided to enter into the world, He entered into a body. In His incarnation, God put His seal of approval on the old human body. And then to cap it off, there is the resurrection in which the body which dies will be reconstituted and renewed a glorified body, a body that will live forever. Don't be Gnostic. Don't be a Greek pagan thinking that the real you is your soul or your spirit. That is not what the Bible teaches. Do not underestimate the value and the dignity of the human body. Don't treat it casually or with disregard. Know that it bears the imprint of God's own image and know that one day it will be resurrected and put back into service never to die again. The tender care with which Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea treated Jesus' body The very fact that they were willing to rescue his body from exposure and abuse and abandonment in the city dump is a sign of the respect that biblical religion shows for the human body. Though his spirit had been separated from his body, his body was still precious. And so were the bodies of our loved ones, which is why we care for them to the very ends of their lives, keeping them comfortable and clean and warm, which is why we care for their bodies after they die. And we carry them with our own hands to their very grave. There's something more than symbolic in the fact that six family members will surround a casket as pallbearers and carry the body of the loved one from the church to the waiting hearse and then from the waiting from hearse to the grave. There are machines that we could use to do that. There are people we could hire to do that. But it is important for us to feel the weight of that final burden. Even to the graveside. As we honor and respect their God-given bodies. That body that God will one day resurrect of the person whose loss we grieve. In their love for Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus gave Jesus' body a proper burial. They washed his skin. They wrapped him in special cloth and covered him in spices. And then they carried this burden to the tomb. The Gospel of John is all about the identity of Jesus And Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. He is the God-man. The crucifixion was the darkest depths of the human journey of the Son of God. He suffered death in His physical body with His whole human self. And He did that for us. But once Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. The tide turned and Jesus began to receive back his full dignity and power and glory. We live after the res- after the crucifixion. We live in light of the resurrection. We worship Christ because he was raised from the dead. Because God the Father vindicated him and demonstrated beyond doubt that he is the King of King and the Lord of Lords. We worship him not because he was a great man or a moral teacher. We worship him because he was God. It's important for us 
to witness and to understand the earthly ministry of Jesus. This is why so many chapters in the Gospels are spent on that period in Jesus' life, the ministry of the man of sorrow, so that we can see the depth of his love for us, a love so deep that he left glory to live with us, to know our lives, to rescue us from sin and death, and to become our merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is the humble, suffering servant, but he is also the power above all powers. He is the one despised and rejected by humankind, a man of sorrows. He is the man who humbled himself at becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is the one whose name is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes it is important for us to see the vulnerability and the tenderness of Jesus. To see that he understands us, that he knows what our suffering feels like because he too suffered. And sometimes it is important for us to see the majesty of Jesus. To see how he is the glorious power behind the entire universe. How he is the very well out of which gushes truth and justice and life and holiness. And I think... That if we can hold those two realities together, his tender humility and his blazing power, that it should drive us to worship. To worship Jesus. He came from heaven to die on a cross for us so that we could be rescued. He is God beyond the universe. But because of our great need, he entered into this universe, taking on the form of a slave to offer his life in our place. And now Jesus' name is above every name. His name is the name that we should be singing. His name is the name that we should be shouting, not only because he is powerful and holy, not only because he is the force behind the universe, but also because he is this insanely loving brother who said to his father, let me die so that they might live. Jesus is not only powerful, he is also good. He is not only holy, he is also kind. And so we praise him. And we worship him. And we throw our lives and our treasure and our crowns and our ambition and our pride at his feet because he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. But one other small thing. Before I close, you and I really need to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. The Bible teaches us the dignity of each human person and of each human body.
of all of creation, only the human body is described as having been made by God's own hand, as bearing God's own image, as being infused with God's own breath. Every single person we see is made in the image of God, and if we worship God, we will also love these people. These two things go together. They cannot be separated. 1 John 4, 20 says, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. I love the way Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus treasured and took care of the body of Jesus at real cost to themselves, at real risk to their lives. They cared about his body because they loved him. We need to treasure the people God has put into our lives, the people in this room, the people that we will go home to spend the evening with, the people who live on our street and across this country. We need to love the people that we see because we cannot say that we love God if we don't love them. This is serious business. The shooter in Las Vegas hated God. And so he sought To obliterate the image of God in so many people. And we have every reason to believe, and I say this with great caution and fear and trembling. We have every reason to believe that that shooter has entered into perpetual conscious terror. And that he is at this very moment and that he will be for all eternity experiencing the righteous wrath of a holy and all-powerful God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is a dangerous business to hate God. And the Bible teaches that if we hate people, we hate God. And so we need to be very careful. I mean, you and I need to be very careful about our little grudges and our little hatreds. Those little hatreds that we think are justified. The ones that we think we are entitled to. Sure, we're not going to go nuts like the wacko in Las Vegas. But we need to be real careful about any hardness in our hearts against any other people. In Luke 4, 12, Jesus says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We need to be careful that we're not testing God's patience with our little self-indulgent hatreds. Instead, we need to think about how we are loving those that God has given us to love. Do we speak to them with kindness? Do we consider other people more worthy and better than ourselves? That's the biblical standard of Christian conduct. Sometimes we're hardest on those who are closest to us, our spouses and our family. We speak more sharply with the people we are closest to. But Jesus says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does our speech Reveal about the content of our hearts. 
Sometimes we're hard on people who are different from us. People of different races, from different neighborhoods. People who have different politics than we have. And different tastes. We don't have to interact with them quite so much as we have to interact with those who are closest to us. But the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that we are, that we have a responsibility to love those people too. What do the words we speak aloud on Facebook in our heads What do the words that we speak about people of other races, about people of differing cultures, about people of other political persuasions reveal about the conditions of our hearts? Is there hate in there? Because if there is, then we are guilty of hating God. And we need to be really careful. This small story of the burial of Jesus is told in just five verses. It is the tender and caring story of two men who had lots to lose and plenty to fear, who laid to rest the sacred body of Jesus of Nazareth. And in that little story, we have a picture of the tenderness and the care that we need to show one another. Those who are in our family, with those who are in our church, those who are in the wider world. Those we are attracted to, and also those that we don't like so much. Let us treat one another with tenderness and care, not just in death, though that is important, but also in life. For in a very real way, every person who walks this earth is a man of sorrow or a woman of sorrow. May we, in the name of Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, treat all people with tenderness, care, and dignity. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. And we love you. We love to hear stories of your life. And even this little story of your burial. And we're glad that Joseph and Nicodemus loved you too. And that they took the risk to save you from the trash heap. Not that it would have made a difference. You would have still been raised from the dead even in a trash heap. But we're glad that they could love you in that way and honor you. Lord, we pray that our lives would be a perpetual sacrifice to you. Because you alone are worthy. You alone saved us. There is no hope outside of you. Receive our prayers this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um. Before the band comes up here. No, the band can come up here.
Steve, can you come up here as well? I haven't talked to you about this, but come on up. 